You may have noticed a subtle theme permeating our service today, even if Camper hadn't announced it uh, in the beginning. But nevertheless, it seems relatively obvious uh, to, uh, to, to people that are, are paying attention to it. And there's a, there's a reason for that, uh, because there's an intentional theme that is running through our, our service that's related to a message uh, that I've been wanting to, uh, to deliver or at least to work through. Uh, for some time, and this seemed to be the appropriate time to do it, being that this is Earth Day weekend, or at least uh, Friday was Earth Day. Now, for a variety of reasons, Earth Day is not really uh, on the radar screen for a lot of uh, conservative evangelicals, uh, and so for those who are not particularly familiar with it, just uh, let me just tell you that Earth Day was first uh, recognized in 1970 as a response to not only the uh, social turmoil that was going on in the country uh, coming out of the 60s, but even some of the ecological disasters that had taken place throughout the country and around the world. Uh, one of the most uh, uh, notable uh, catalysts for the establishment of this day was the Cuyahoga River um, turning in, in Cleveland, uh, turning into flame. It's something that most of us, uh, basic understanding, recognize that water should not burn. And yet, in Cleveland, it did. And, uh, and so, uh, with that and other things that were going on, uh, there were a number of people who uh, were concerned. And the, they established a day just to bring attention to the needs and the dangers uh, that were around us in, uh, in our environment. Now, again, for a number of reasons, and maybe for understandable reasons, Earth Day has not been something that we would call a high holiday on the evangelical church calendar. It may be because of the absurdity of some of the things that have been associated with the environmental movement, and not even those that are without faith, but even some that have faith. Jay Leno seemed to touch on one of the absurd things that took place several years ago. A group calling themselves the Evangelical Environmental Network I had decided that they wanted to bring change, particularly in the area of automobiles. They wanted to reduce fuel consumption and gas emissions, and so with uh, noble purposes, uh, they decided to borrow some initials from another popular campaign at the time and slightly tweak it. So they began their WWJD campaign, but in this case, WWJD would, what would Jesus drive? as if everybody that hears that question is going to come to the same conclusion and everybody buy compact or, uh, or cars that use no gasoline whatsoever. But that campaign got enough notoriety that Jay Leno, as he was giving his, uh, his monologue on The Tonight Show at the time, he took the question up. He acknowledged that the Evangelical Environmental Network had posed this question. And he said, so let's see. And he began to consider, what would Jesus drive? And so Jay Leno said, well, he's... Uh, He's a, a young 30-something-year-old guy, blue-collar carpenter from a rural community. I mean, sounds like he'd have a Dodge Ram or some other big old SUV, wouldn't it? And so, so at least Jay Leno's uh, idea was not in line with what they were hoping would be uh, the answer for people that would ask themselves WWJD. And so it may be the absurdity is one of the reasons why a number of Christians have not signed on. It could be because of the fear of being guilt by association. For better and for worse, most of the evangelical culture has been associated or have embraced more conservative ideals, at least on the political spectrum. And as we look at most of the environmental work that is being done or propagated, 
they tend to come from more left-leaning or left-wing politics in, in, in trying to pass the, uh, pass the different policies and, and get engaged. And it may be that people are just afraid of being labeled something they're not, or even just being guilty of, the, uh, of, of hostilities, because there are some who have throughout the years even gone so far as to blame Christianity for the ecological issues that we are dealing with. Perhaps most notable was a man named Lynn White who published an essay in the journal Science, and he specifically blamed Christianity for all of the world's ecological problems, saying that the foundation of our faith and, and the basis of our, our ethics uh, create an environment in which the abuse of the environment is almost, um, almost expected, and so therefore Christians are to blame. And so who wants to hang out with people who are going to be pointing their finger and blaming you for everything? Or it might just simply be the confusion of spiritualities, recognizing that pagans, which simply means of the earth, they focus all of their attention on the environment because that is essentially what they worship. And as Christians, we know that we do not worship creation. We worship a creator. It may be difficult for some of us to have an idea of where is it that we get involved and where is that line and when do we cross that line? And so therefore, we've stood on the sidelines allowed others to be engaged in the creation, whether we enjoy it, whether we know our place in it, or its place in our world or not. But there's any number of reasons it could be that we, as evangelicals, uh, have not really added our voices into the discussions about the difficulties and the solutions to the difficulties regarding the environment. And that has always seemed somewhat odd to me for any number of reasons, any number of passages in the Scripture, uh, but perhaps most simply the one that we'll look at this morning. It's already been part of our, our liturgy, uh, but in Psalm 24. So if you'll turn there, the first two verses, we'll look at that for just a moment. We'll be looking at other passages this morning as well. But in Psalm 24, David begins this way. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And so David declares in the beginning of this psalm that the earth is the Lord, and so it seems all the more perplexing to me that those who are also belong to the Lord are not actively engaged, are not known to be engaged with the Lord's very possession. So what I want to do this morning, and it's the reason we're taking a break from our uh, study of the Beatitudes, is to consider some of the ideas that we have or explore some of the thoughts that the Bible gives to us about how we ought to see the world and our role in the world. And I am by no means an expert in this, and so as I preach, it'd be a little different because I'm sort of musing and pondering as well as sharing my thought process in this. And so there are others who can take you far deeper um, with these questions. But this morning I just wanted to open the subject and something that isn't talked about often enough. Even after the first service, I had somebody come up and say, that's an unusual topic. Um, I don't know if he's been reading statistics, but apparently it's an unusual topic. So, so we're unusual, which is a nice way of saying weird. But... Um, but hopefully we can be weird, but biblical at the same time. And actually, if we are biblical, there's probably nothing that would make us more weird. So, but 
because I don't know what I'm talking about and I'm just exploring my questions, and we want to remain biblical, it's probably a good idea that we pray before we jump in. So let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, as we come to you now, we thank you for the word that you've given. We are not left as those who have to wonder about what is on your heart, what you would have us to do, and our place in your world. Uh, We may be neglectful at times. We may be fearful. But we are not unguided. And so I pray this morning that you would be at work in our midst, opening the eyes you have given us to behold not only the beauty of the creation you have made, but the glory of the instruction you have given us. May we come to understanding of your heart for this world, and may our hearts be conformed to it and our lives to follow. That all that we think, all that we value, and all that we do would not only be in conformity to your will, but bring you joy, glory, and honor. For this, Lord, you must be at work. So guide us by your word and your spirit as we consider your principles. We pray all this in the name of Christ, our Redeemer and our King. I'm going to just break this up into three different parts that are kind of flow and relate. And as I said, we'll be looking at a couple of different passages, but we'll begin with the passage that kind of launched us. And the first point is simply this that we need to consider is the earth is the Lord. That's what Psalm 24 begins and tells us. Now, to be accurate about what Psalm 24 is about, it's really not about creation. That's not what the the psalm is about as a whole. You could look at Psalm 104 and see far more detail as to what the Lord has done. Psalm 24 is really about coming into God's presence and approaching God. And so you would see in a subsequent verse, who can come into God's presence, who can approach his holy hill. And so the purpose of the first two verses that tell us God is the creator of all things is really to inspire a sense of awe in his people so that we are reminded of who it is that we come to see when we come into worship and when we come into his presence through prayer. That we don't just go into his presence as we would barge into a 7-Eleven, just something we do every day, no big deal, easily approachable, but we have some mindset of the holiness and the awesomeness of God. And so the psalmist David, as he's writing here, he's reminding us that God created everything now with the one who has the power and the ability to do that and all that majesty. Now give some thought as to what you're doing. But even though the psalm itself is not primarily about creation and creation issues, These first two verses are so clear and so significant that they tell us something important about God and about the implications that go with that. The first thing that it reminds us is the earth belongs to God. And then he goes on and explains as to why the earth belongs to God. It's not just a declaration. God didn't just say, I want it, and being God, he can have whatever he wants. The earth belongs to God because God created it. God made it. He fashioned everything that exists. And we would recognize that in almost any other aspect, any other uh, sphere of our society. The one who creates, the one who invents, has the 
property rights to whatever it is they've created and invented. And so if you are a songwriter, if you are an artist, what you create belongs to you. Everybody would recognize that. If you are an inventor, most people understand that. Now we have patents and other things because people in this world would claim ownership uh, as well. They'd copy their design. God's probably pretty safe in this. While people may not attribute to him creation, there's nobody that is in their right mind going to be taken seriously if they said, see all this? I did that. I mean, even if you just go down to the James River, say, see all that? I filled that up. You know, you're going to go to Eastern State or someplace else if that's your claim. But by virtue, we understand, by virtue of creating, of inventing, of making, there is an ownership that goes with the one who makes. And that's the case that David is saying is, the earth is the Lord's. He made it. Argument over, right? I mean, we know that it belongs to God. The question now is whether or not we are people who recognize it belongs to God or whether we are people who fail to recognize that it belongs to God. And yet, even with that understanding, and even as Christians historically have always understood that, even as evangelicals in our contemporary culture who are not engaged that much with the environment understand that God is the creator, we still are probably, as a whole, rightly accused of not being involved, not being particularly careful about it. And it may be because we're confused. So I began thinking about this. I was reminded of a paradox that writer Michael Horton talked about uh, at one point that he struggled with in in his childhood. He said he was very confused as he was growing up by the lyrics of two hymns that they would sing in their church. They were very common hymns, but they confused him. The first was, this is my father's world. And the second one was, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. And he said from the time he was eight years old and on, and it struck him that these two were not actually in the, declaring the same message, he would just ponder this question. If this, world is, if this is my father's world, why isn't it my home? My father's house is my home, so why is my heavenly father's world not my home? And he recognized later on, as he looked back, that many of us probably operate with that, that confusion. We declare it's God's world, but it's not our home. We declare that God loved the world, and so he redeemed the world by sending his only begotten son, and yet, for some reason, we are afraid to engage that world that he has made. And we need to recognize that while it is true that God made us for all eternity, and that we are in need of the salvation which will bring us into his heavenly realm, it is also true that this world, as broken as it is, is still important. And that Jesus came not only to redeem a people, but we're told that he is redeeming and renewing the entire earth. That itself makes it important because the earth is the beneficiary, part of one of the beneficiaries of the work of redemption that God is, is doing right now. It's, it's the object of, of part of his plan of renewal. And the scriptures not only tell us that the earth has been redeemed, the earth that belongs to God, and then he paid to purchase it back, which is what redemption is, we're even given scriptural instructions of how we as his people are to relate to the creation that belongs to our Father. One of the most vivid I can think of comes in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, dealing with the issue that is common for many of us and, and very close to the heart of, of many even within this church. It's the issue of dealing with anxiety. It's common to all, and it is paralyzing for some of us. Here's what Jesus says as he's addressing that. Matthew 6, in verse 26, he says, Look at the birds of the air. 
They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And in verse 28, uh, in the following verses, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in his glory was arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And these verses that are given to us as Jesus is presenting his Sermon on the Mount, his, his manifesto of the kingdom, what does it mean to live in this world as a as citizen of the kingdom of heaven? He's addressing a common ailment that, is, that we experience, the fear, the anxiety that paralyzes us, makes us unhealthy, even sends some of us to premature, premature death. And those that it doesn't it may make you feel that you would prefer death because it is such a powerful, powerful emotion. Jesus is addressing that, and one of the things we need to see is that these words he gives are not just poems that we're supposed to memorize and maybe turn into song lyrics, that there is a sense that when understood in light of the gospel, God's creation is the antidote to our anxiety. These are words. These are instructions. He's not just saying, take a look. I mean, the word, when he says, you know, look at the birds of the air, he's not saying, oh, I see that. That's a bird. I've seen it before. I don't need to look. He's telling us it means gaze, look at. Consider the lilies of the field is not just look out at the beauty, but it's to ponder, to, to be very aware, and to give our attention to. And these are not just suggestions, but these are the instructions of how we're to relate to the creation that's around us. Jesus is pointing our attention to it and saying that we need to be aware, we need to be conscious, we need to learn from, we need to consider, and there's benefit to us as well. Counselor Paul Tripp says that, uh, that bird watching itself is good for your soul. And he goes on and he says that in the way that we relate to creation, here's what he says. When you're struggling with anxiety, Jesus tells you to look around the creation. Embedded in the physical world are constant theological reminders that God doesn't abandon the work of his hands. The birds of the air, the flowers of the field, and the countless other living organisms point to the loving care of God. And if God would care that much for birds and flowers, how much more would he care for those who are made after his image? If God feeds and clothes animals and plants without an eternal soul, how much more will he provide for those covered by the costly blood of his son? You have reason to rest because creation preaches to you a gospel of divine faithfulness. And so Paul trips onto something here because he's saying that God has provided creation that not only points to the fact that there is a creator, but for those who understand the gospel, that know that we are the people of God, those who can say, this is my Father's world because the Father has adopted us and made us born again by his own spirit, we are instructed to look at the creation and relate to it in a way by seeing how God is at work and then remembering that he has made greater promises to us who are made after his own image. So what it means, simply put, is that we should spend time enjoying the creation, being out, considering not only what's going on, but just watching, watching the birds go about their business, almost without a care. But their nests are made, they're fed, they're sheltered. The lilies grow every spring. God provides them not only for our enjoyment, 
but in essence for our sanctification, for our peace. We relate to the creation that is around us. God's instructed us to do it because he's put all things to work together for our salvation, for our good. This is our Father's world. And we relate to the creation that is around us. His children have a connection to it. We also need to explore another aspect of that connection. One that at times has been controversial for some, particularly those who are outside of the church, and perhaps we've given them cause. Because we not only connect with the creation, but the second thing we need to recognize is the Lord has assigned dominion of the creation to, to, to man. Genesis 1.28, God speaking to Adam and Eve in the garden. God reveals this. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, uh, of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God is designing the, the, the dominion, the authority, the caretaking of all of creation that belongs to him is assigned to man. Now, one of the things that we need to note here is that the responsibility is not given to Christians only, but given to all of humanity. See, when God was speaking here, he was speaking to the entire earth, which at that time, so far as we know, consisted of two people. So, and so they represent all of humanity, and he says all of humanity is responsible to be caretakers of the earth. But it's not insignificant that these two people, at the time that God was speaking with them, walked with God in a fellowship that we dream of that we would call heaven. And so they not only represent all of humanity because they are the source of all humanity, but they represent the people of God because they were godly people. And so when we look at this command, we recognize that it is a shared responsibility for all of humanity, but there is no excuse for those who belong to God, to not be engaged in creation care. In fact, to be disengaged from creation care is to be disobedient to God our Father. Because he has said, we are to have dominion and authority over all of the creation. Now, understanding that we have a responsibility to be involved, it's important we also not fall to the fallacy, thinking that whoever places a higher priority on something must therefore have the, the better perspective about it. And what I mean by that is this. Comparing Christian faith and paganism, and again, paganism is not throwing a name out of somebody. Most people who are pagan would gladly embrace the name pagan. In fact, I remember seeing a sign on one of the street corners, one of you know, the street road signs that was adopted by the pagans of Williamsburg. They, 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 uh, they paid for cleaning up one of the streets. So, so I don't think somebody was just accusing them of anything. Pagan, again, just simply means of the earth. And these are people who the earth is the highest priority. Environment is the highest priority of their lives. There is an essence that they truly worship uh, uh, creation because they are awed by it as they should. They revolve their lives around it. They get their identity from their participation in it. This is part of the essence of, of paganism. And it's the highest priority because it means their whole identity is of the, of the earth. That's their highest priority. Now, on the other hand, as Christians, our lives do not revolve, our faith does not revolve around creation. Our faith revolves around the cross. 
we have our identity in the love of God demonstrated through what Jesus Christ has done for us. We have value because Jesus gave everything his own life, becoming like us, giving his life, and then rising to conquering death. Everything revolves around that. And while creation should be important to us, it's not the highest priority. Our identity is not wrapped up in that. Now, the fallacy tends to be this. The one who makes it the highest priority, well, then they probably know the most, right? Because their whole life revolves around it. And if they know the most, then they would have the best perspective. And since it's highest priority for the pagans, and let's just say it's third or fourth in priority for Christians, well, then the pagans must be the ones in the know. That's a fallacy. Because you can have a high priority and still have a warped perspective. I think it's illustrated in Shakespeare's Othello. You may remember the scene at the end of the play. Othello is standing there, just dawned on him. He's distraught, despair, because he's now taking in what he has just done. Assuming that his wife, Desdemona, had been unfaithful to him in his anger, he had murdered her. Now as she lie there dead and he's standing there thinking about this, life can't come back. He's now a murderer, done this evil thing. He's without the object of his affection. And he's trying to figure out, why did I do this? And he utters the memorable line, I have loved not wisely, but too well. What he means by that is his whole identity, his whole passion, his love was so intense toward Desdemona, whether he loved love, whether he loved Desdemona, whether he loved possessing, clearly if it leads to murder, there was something warped in there, but that was the highest priority that he had. And his statement was, I loved too much, but I didn't love wisely. And it led to disastrous results because even though that was the highest priority, he didn't act wisely. If he was to travel and avoid jail and write letters on, guys, here's how you love your wives. In fact, nobody has loved their wife as much as I have loved. Let me tell you what love is. I don't think that would be a bestseller. And if your wife found you reading it, it'd be scrapped. But love your wife so much that you might kill her if she doesn't you know, measure up to your expectation. Whether we'll just accept that there was a, just a warped love in that, but it, it illustrates the point. And I don't want to say that everybody who might be skewed is necessarily going to be perpetrators of evil. I just mean that just because something is a high priority, just because somebody pours themselves into something, doesn't mean that their perspective is the one that should be adopted. And while that we can see that clearly in Othello's case, we also need to see that same reality when we're considering those who have elevated themselves to be leaders in the environmental movement. It is quite possible that many of them have given themselves over to something to such a degree that they love not wisely, but too well. This is not only my own speculation as I look and see things that cause me to question, or people and some of the things that they're proposing that cause me to ask questions, is this the way that we are supposed to live? But it seems to be the revelation of God as well. Romans 1, probably the greatest theological treatise that we are given, touches on that very subject. 
listen to what the apostle writes, inspired by God, beginning in, I'll read from verse 18 and to probably 25 or so. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And that's important to understand is that means there is truth. God is the one who gives the truth and he pours his wrath out against those who suppress the truth. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, part of the purpose of creation is that God reveals part of his own being, his own attributes. We can't know everything there is to know about God through them, but we can know enough about God that God says that we are without excuse if we're not seeking after him. Because creation within it has revelation of God. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They loved not wisely, but too well. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, or creepy things, either way works. And therefore God gave them up to the lust of their own hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their own bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So that's a very powerful, powerful statement that gives an understanding of a lot of what we see that's going on in the name of environmentalism or creation care in our culture. People who have loved not wisely but too well have exchanged, though, you know, everything in creation testifies that there is a God and even tells us something about that God to the point that they're left without excuse, but they love the creation more, and so they decided even if they claim there's a God, if they deny there's a God, it doesn't matter. God has just given them over to the thing that they really love, which is they can pursue to love not wisely but too well. It's a biblical pattern, and we need to be aware that that's there. And so, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to indict anybody in particular. I'm just saying we need to be careful not to fall to the fallacy because somebody is more passionate about something that they necessarily have the proper perspective. But at the same time, we need to realize that just because you discredit a witness, that's not the same thing as making your own case. In fact, even if you've discredited a witness, it doesn't mean that everything that the witness has said is itself wrong. And we need to be reminded that just because people might not have the proper perspective or the right perspective, that they love not wisely but too well, it doesn't mean that there's nothing that they have discovered, nothing that they have understood that we can benefit from. The fact of the matter is, people and their passion for the creation, creation care, have discovered a lot about how the world works and what the needs are and needs that need to be addressed that we need to be involved in. We can gain from them even just a sense of the understanding and awe of God. I've benefited recently, as I've discovered the past year or so, an artist named Louis Schwartzberg, and his medium is, is film and short film. 
and his art work comes under the heading. He calls his art company um, Moving Art. The first film that I saw of his is simply is called um, is just called Trees. And as you watch it, he just shows various trees and their movement and somehow captures them from different angles and time lapse and other things in a realization to give you a perspective more than what I tend to see. But see, the reality is even the trees with the breeze are performing a liturgical dance for the pleasure of our God and for the benefit of those who are able to see it. Now, my house is fully in the woods, and I can't see anything but trees when I look out of my window, and so, but that's given me an entirely new perspective of this. God has created the trees for all of their biological functions, but he's also, there's a beauty, there's a joy, there's a rhythm, there's something that is going on. And then Schwartzberg has others that, he, that I have seen that, uh, you know, he's got one of the deep sea. Yeah, that's easy for people to understand. He has one of the desert. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at the desert, it looks like nothing. That's why they call it a desert, at least in my mind. It's deserted. There's nothing there, just kind of sand. And yet, through his time lapse and his eye that I don't possess, his eye that God has endowed him with, even though I don't think that he makes any claim of being a believer, just showing as the wind and the time and shifting of the sand that it itself is bringing beauty. And so from a perspective that is outside of, I need something to drink and I'm hundreds of miles from the nearest gas station, there is a beauty of the creation that God has given that I've been able to appreciate and see in a new way because God has blessed and gifted this person who's not a believer who has given himself to explore the beauty of creation. I pray that he becomes a believer because he seems to know quite a bit, and I've benefited from that. And so whether it's scientists or whether it is other artists, we are able to gain an appreciation and an understanding from those who are not believers uh, as well. We're not saying that they should be totally dismissed and that they have no right to be involved. Dominion has been given to all of humanity. We can learn from them. We can benefit from them. But nevertheless, we need to be careful of assuming that because they have given their lives to that, that they have the best perspective. We, as Christians, still have the responsibility to exercise dominion, even as they may be as well. Now, even the words of the charge here sometimes make people uncomfortable subdue and exercise dominion. It just seems so, so harsh. I mean, I read those words, and it, I, it, the first image comes to my mind is, you know, it sounds like MMA language, you know, mixed martial arts, you know, put them in a submission hold. That's what we're supposed to do with creation. Good luck with that. Go stand at the beach and go out and find just one good current that's coming under your toe and, and say, yeah, good luck in putting this into your submission. It's not going to happen. We can't conquer the earth. It is too powerful. It is an expression of God. And at the same time, it's a reminder that we depend on God and that we uh, who have a responsibility that is greater than we can fathom must depend on God. But we still have that responsibility. And we need to understand what dominion literally means. And all it means simply is we have the authority to not only govern, but to shape, to utilize, to harvest, to cultivate all of the earth for our benefit, to God's glory, and for the benefit of people who are around us. Dominion doesn't mean that we have the authority to do whatever we want, and sometimes that's been the case. And people who are as corrupt and love not wisely but too well that are on the other side of the spectrum from the environmentalists, people who couldn't care 
a bit about the environment, but they love dollars, will abuse it under the guise of we have all authority, God's given it to us, and we can do what we want. We have been given this, but remember what this passage in Psalm 24 says, the earth belongs to God. He didn't give us the title. It still belongs to him. He gave us a charge to have dominion. He's given us all authority in order to cultivate it, but it's a stewardship kind of a charge. We have the ability, uh, we have the responsibility to be at work, but we must do it in line with the values and the purposes of God for that very creation, not just for our own self-glorification. There is a sense that we are essentially just like the groundskeeper at a golf course, even if it is at Augusta National, which reminds most people that are golfers of heaven, at least one week every April. And the groundskeepers there have become experts in what it takes to keep it functioning and to look beautiful and to bring pleasure to both those who play and those who watch, anybody that's associated. They have all authority that is necessary to do what, is necess- what they've been instructed to do. But even with all of that authority, they can still be fired by the board of directors, the ones who actually own the golf course. The reality is, is we need to see that we have a charge and a responsibility, but it must be exercised in line with the way that God would have us to use it. We need to be involved, and Christians are not exempt. But we need to understand that it should be driving us to God. And it has a better purpose. The last thing I'm just going to, I'm going to say on this is I've observed, and I won't go into great detail with it, but I think it needs to be said. Is a creation care, while it is to be done for the glory of God, is also an expression of love for our neighbor. That's why we do it. And they're not mutually exclusive. See, we cultivate the earth In so doing, we recognize aspects of God. It reminds us that there is a creator. It tells us something about God. It tells us that God is greater than we are, that he knows far more than we do. Every secret that we discover reminds us that God has known this because he created it, and he knows far more than what we have discovered. And at the same time, our discoveries and then our cultivation is done not only for God's enjoyment, but it is done for the enjoyment of the people who are around us as well as for the benefit. We go and we cultivate and we take dominion over the earth and we pull water from the earth so that people who have no water will be able to have their needs met. We plant gardens and agricultural uh, progress and we go and we help people in that area so that their needs can be met. Now, having their needs met is not all there is. And that's one of the problems as evangelicals I think that we get caught up in because if they live their lives with every blessing possible and don't come to Christ, the scripture even deals with that. What good is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your own soul? So we think we'll skip by the basic needs and we'll just go to the ultimate and only deal with the soul issues. And then we wonder why people don't think we care about them because we just want them to agree with what they think is our ideology, but we don't deal with what they need, and in this case, I think God is saying, and we're irresponsible, we are rejecting the commission to be exercising the dominion on the earth when we fail to do it. We are to do creation care, to 
God's glory and for the benefit of our neighbor. And they're not mutually exclusive. Historic example, many of you know the name of George Washington Carver. A brilliant scientist and a godly man. Somehow having this understanding that through creation he might understand something of God, he, said, he prayed to the Lord, this is at least legend. I'm sure he prayed, but whether this is his first prayer, I don't know. But Lord, give me this, unlock the secrets of the universe for me. A noble prayer. I mean, if we're going to find something of God in the earth, how much more the universe? And then somehow, whether it was the Holy Spirit or his common sense said, that's a little bit big for you, George. He said, okay, the secrets of the earth. I think you're dreaming a little bit too much still. And so as he was humbled a little bit more, humbled by the end result of his humbling before God, he said, okay, give me insights into the peanut. And God said, okay, we'll start there with the, the peanut. And George Washington Carver discovered 100-plus uses for the peanut that have created not only recipes but inventions. Peanut butter, which is causing college students to sing praise to God for the creation of it. Um, 105 different uses of a peanut that nobody ever understood before. As he poured himself in and saw the wisdom of God unlocked in a peanut, and then the beneficiaries of his discovery were all of humanity who now use the things that he discovered. We are called to be cultivators of the earth in a variety of ways that bring pleasure and benefit to others and see God in that. That that's, seems to me what is the simple aspect. I'm going to wrap it up with this back in the early 70s and the early days of contemporary Christian music, there was an artist that probably very few remember named Larry Norman. Tim Siemens here, he probably remembers him, but others may not. That's not a household name. But he asked a very significant question in one of his songs. Why should the devil have all the good music? And I find myself asking, why should the pagans have all the joy of God's creation? We who are his children, who are about the family business, have an opportunity as well as a responsibility. And if we're still concerned with our place and whether it's appropriate or not, and our priority is only the spiritual and not as concerned with the physical, I want you to hear these words with the end of an article written by a man named Dan Story for the Creation Research Institute. This article is titled, Should Christians Be Environmentalists? And here's what he says. The mindset that all environmentalists are liberal radicals not only hinders real progress in identifying and formulating strategies to combat potentially serious environmental problems, but it gives Christianity an ecological black eye and compromises what could be tremendous evangelistic opportunities. Christian environmental activism can have great appeal to secular and New Age unbelievers who think Christians are apathetic to environmental issues and who think non-Christian religions are better suited to formulate environmental ethic and stewardship guidelines. In one sense, it's just common sense. 
when we do what we're supposed to do, even when we therefore are stepping into the idols of the world, at least they recognize we care. We who have the wisdom from God, it's not because we are smarter than others by any imagination or any measure. But there is a shared care, and we have the opportunity to shift the whole question from environmentalism to creation care. It's just semantics in one sense, but when we use the phrase creation care, and I don't want to be legalistic, it's really a point of, a, of, of illustration. If we are about creation care, which is the same thing, we have the opportunity to declare and declare the praises of the creator. And at the same time, engaging with people who are in need of the saving work of that creator. They will know that we care about what they care about. They will know that we care about them. They will know that we have identified with them, that we have become like them. Now, that description itself is amazing to me because it sounds very much like what Jesus has done for us. He cared. He demonstrated it. He became like us, took on our concerns, our difficulties, in order that he would be the redemption, which we cannot be. But when we engage in what God has instructed us to engage in, we find the joy of seeing our Father revealed and benefit other people around, we also have the possibility of reaching people who are right now rejecting and accusing the church of Jesus Christ as being uncaring. We need to recognize in participating in that a day like Earth Day or any other environmental endeavor does not signify that we are in submission to all of the notions associated with it any more than saying the Pledge of Allegiance suggests that you agree with every idea that's floated in Washington, D.C. We need to remember that the earth is the Lord's and that this is our Father's world. And that the earth is our home. And our Father is about the business of renewing and restoring and says he will do it in part through us. It's amazing. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the word that you've given. We pray that you would bless us with an understanding. Father, I pray that words that I have spoken that may not be in line with your truth, that those would be quickly forgotten, but words of truth and challenge and encouragement would be at work. Guide us and direct us and enable us at this church and this people to be a people who enjoy you in your creation and use your creation to glorify your name. Father, how blessed we are. We pray all things in Christ.